morning, everybody. Grace. Grace is, uh, is actually one of my wife's favorite words. Uh, so much so that, that several years ago she named one of our dogs Grace. And, and of all the pets that have shared our home over the years, uh, even though Grace was only with us for a little while, um, she was, we probably have the best memories of this dog, uh, of all of them. This is, uh, this is a picture of her right here. And uh, if any of you have ever had a lab, uh, you'll know that they are just a tiny bit playful, uh, especially when they're young. And I just think they can't help it. We came home one night, and, uh, and this was several years ago, so we came home one night, and uh, we walked in the house. Grace was uh, two. Okay, two. So that's, that's a, a great or a not-so-great age for a lab. Um, and we had, we had uh, baby gates all over the house to corral her, and uh, especially the gate going upstairs. So we walk into the house, and the first thing we notice is that we had forgot to put the gate up, going up the steps. And upstairs was off-limits for Grace. Not so much our other little dog. She was older, more mature, and smarter. And, uh, but not, not so much Grace. So normally when we'd walk in the door, the dogs would be right there to greet us and say, hey, how's it going? Did you have a good day? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, no dogs. And we saw the gate was down. We thought, oh, no. And, and Deb yells out, Grace! And then uh, Elliot, our son, he, Grace! And then I yell out, Grace! And, you know, we had a lot of Grace going on at that time. And then, and then we hear the sound of um, little little paw prints upstairs in the in the hallway in the wooden floor, and and down comes Lizzie, our little dog, and she's looking at us like you know, it wasn't my idea. Um, and, and Elliot he charged up the steps, and then in a minute we hear we hear him yell from his room, Grace, and then he starts laughing, which is either good. Or, or, or not so good. We weren't really sure. So I, I go up and it turns out that, um, in our absence with the gate down, Grace decided to go exploring. She just considered that, hey, it's like an invitation, you know? So she goes upstairs and does some exploring. She's in Elliot's room and she found an empty bag of, of cheese crackers. Uh, well, not so empty. Um, and, and, and she stuffed her head into the bag. To get down into the bottom, you know, to get the crumbs, and and then couldn't get her head back out. So, so she's got she's got this bag on her head, um, and in the process of trying to free herself, she actually bumped the door shut in in Elliot's bedroom. Um, but she didn't know that, you know, she she didn't know that the door was shut. She still figured out there was a way. I don't know where she was going to go anyway. The bag on her head, but she's trying to get out of the room, um, and and she really didn't know where she was. So when Elliot found her. She was in the back of his closet, um, behind the clothes, on top of a box, with a bag on her head. <laughs> you know, and how, how can you even get a little bit, a little bit angry at that? You know, it was, I just, I wish we had been smart enough to take pictures at those times. But, so over the years, um, over the years, that she was with us. Grace, the dog, was really a, a good teacher for me um, about grace. Every time, every time something went wrong, you know, that word would come out of my mouth. Grace! And then, and then I have to stop and I have to kind of think about that again. 
you know, more than once we wondered what in the world were we thinking when we named her, her grace. So in this teaching series, um, we've been looking at some of those words that we kind of throw around on a Sunday morning, words that we find in the Bible that are oftentimes a little difficult to understand, but they're so important. These words are so very important for us to understand. And grace is one of those words. Grace is one of those really tough concepts. And an aspect of grace that I think is even more difficult is, is the whole thing about forgiveness. And, and there's some great resources out there about this. Um, Max Lucado's got a book called In the Grip of Grace. Uh, Philip Yancey's got a book that's been out for a while called What's So Amazing About Grace. There was another book that I saw called If Grace So Is, is So Amazing, Why Don't I Like It? Um, I don't know if that's any good or not, but I thought the title was really, really great. Um, so we're going to think about that this morning. Before we do, I want to I want to just pause. I want to take a deep breath, and I'll, I want to say a prayer. So please pray with me. Father, um, these concepts are not just words, grace, forgiveness. Uh, these are gifts from you. Uh, these are your idea. They're actually a part of you. So with that in mind, just help us to think. Help us to listen. Help us to more clearly understand your grace, your forgiveness, and the role it plays in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip Yancey um, wrote what I think is one of the best definitions of grace, and he did it by, by contrasting grace with two other words, mercy and justice, which are words that we typically understand a lot better. So this is what he said. He said, justice is, in, is when you get what you deserve. We get that. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And I think we, we understand that too. Now, grace, the more difficult one, is when you get what you don't deserve. Do we understand that? Every week, a young man by the name of Kevin is required to mail a dollar to a family that he'd rather forget. They sued him for $1.5 million, but they settled for $936 to be paid $1 at a time. Family expects $1, that dollar, every week, every Friday, so that Kevin won't forget what happened. And what happened is that this family lost a child. They lost a daughter. She died in a head-on collision. Kevin was convicted of manslaughter and drunk driving. He was 17 and she was 18. Kevin served the court sentence. He also spent seven years campaigning against drunk driving, which was actually six years uh, more than his sentence required. But he keeps forgetting to send the dollar. Every week for 18 years, Kevin writes a check out to the victim, he mails it to her family, and then the money is deposited into a scholarship fund in the victim's name. Four times, the family has taken Kevin to court because he forgot to write the $1 check. Once he spent 30 days in jail. And he, he insists that he's, he's not defying the court order. The truth is that he is haunted by this girl's death. And every $1 check that he writes is a pain-filled, shame-filled experience. 
Kevin even offered to give the, the family two boxes of checks covering all the months and all the years remaining on his death, debt and, and then a couple of additional years were thrown in. But they refused. You see, it's not about the money. It's not the money, really, that they want. What they want is they want justice. The mother of the girl who was killed said, we want to receive the check every week on time. He must understand we are going to pursue this until the last day. We will go back to court every month if we have to. Now, do you think that this family has a right to be angry? I do. Do you think it's right that the guilty are punished? I do. I think it's naive to think our world can survive otherwise. But I do have one concern. Is 936 weekly payments enough? When this family receives that final $1 payment, will they be at peace? Will they be able to put the matter to rest? Is 18 years long enough? How much is enough? If it were you, how many payments would you require? Better yet, how many payments do you require? You know, none of us make it through life without getting hurt. Someone somewhere has hurt you. Someone somewhere will hurt you again. At some time in your life, you have been a victim. Everybody gets hurt. Everyone gets wounded. So we all must decide how many payments will be enough. How much will I demand? We may not ask for $1 checks every week, but we've got other ways of settling the score, don't we? Silence. Silence is a popular technique. We just ignore them. Or distance is equally effective. When they come our way, we just go the other way. Carefully chosen words also work. Sarcasm, nagging, backbiting, gossiping, spreading rumors, character demolition, or just plain being mean. It's amazing how creative we can get at getting even. If we can mess up one moment, one meal, one evening, one day, one year, one life, then justice is served and I'm content for now until I think about it again, until I see you again, until something bad happens and, and I'm reminded of what you did. Then, then I'll demand another check. You see, I'm not about to let you heal before I do. As long as I hurt, you hurt. It, it, it's almost like an addiction, isn't it? This is what Max Lucado wrote. He said, hurt becomes hate and hate becomes rage as we become junkies, unable to make it through the day without mainlining on bitterness. 
Where does it end? Will the score ever be settled? How, how do we break the cycle? How many payments do I require? Well, Peter asked Jesus a, a very similar question in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. Here's what he asked. He said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And my guess here is that Peter is actually concerned about being too forgiving. He's worried about over-forgiving. The Jewish law actually says that you should forgive someone three times. And Peter doubled that, and then he threw in another one for good measure. And maybe he thinks that Jesus is going to be pretty impressed with him. Wow, Peter, seven times, that's mighty big of you. But instead, this is what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, and whenever you see that, written that way, that, that's kind of the, it's kind of the way of saying, are you listening? Pay attention. This is important. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, if you're sitting there doing the math in your head, just stop it because that's not the point. Keeping track of how forgiving you are is not forgiveness. If you are measuring your grace, then you're not being gracious. The point Jesus is making is that there should never be a point when our grace runs out. Yeah, but what about the Kevins in this world who get drunk and kill people? What about the father who abandoned me as a kid? What about my wife who, who dumped me for a newer model? What about the boss who laid me off even though my, my kid was sick? What about them, Jesus? That's different, right? Well, Jesus goes on to tell Peter and the other folks listening this story about an unforgiving servant. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So this guy was in trouble. He had a huge debt. A thousand dollars a day for 30 years would pay it off. A thousand dollars a day would pay it off. But, but where was he going to get that kind of money? You know, what if he paid a dollar a week? And over 19,000 years, he'd take care of the first million. His debt was far greater than he had the power to repay. You know what? We're not all that different. How many times have you pleaded 
to God. Just get me through this mess, God. I'll, I'll never mess up again. I'll never do it again. I'll do anything for you. And the servant says to his master, Be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. Everything I owe. And the master was gracious toward the servant. And the servant leaves a debt-free man. But you know what? He doesn't believe it. Let's read on. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began choking him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged, be patient with me. Does this sound familiar? Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. Now, what is wrong with this picture? Is this how a man acts who has just been, who has just been forgiven a multi-million dollar debt? Choking a guy who owes him just a few bucks? Pay me the money you owe me. Is this how a man acts who has been set free? How can somebody who's been forgiven not forgive? How can a a free person not be quick to free others? Well, part of the answer is found in the words of Jesus. And this is from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. To believe that we are totally and eternally forgiven is not easy. Even if we stood before God right now and we heard those words from Him, I think many of us would still doubt it. For that reason, many people are forgiven only a little. Not because God's grace doesn't work, but because I just don't believe it. God is willing to forgive everything. He's willing to wipe the slate completely clean. It's like, it's like He's guiding us to this pool of grace and He just invites us to jump in. And, and some of us dive right in. But many others just, just kind of reach out and just touch the surface. And then they leave feeling unforgiven. And I think that's what the problem is with his servant. He still feels like he was in debt. He must have. Why else did he act the way he did? Instead of forgiving the man who owed him just a little, he chokes him out. He decides to try to squeeze it out of him. Why? Is it because the guy owes him so much? But he doesn't. I think it's because that man reminds him of his own debt to the king. The king forgave the debt, but the servant never really accepted the king's grace. Maybe that's why it says this in Hebrews. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When we miss the grace of God, the potential for bitterness is is great. In what was probably his last letter, 
the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this to Timothy. He said, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, what an interesting thing to say. Paul could have said anything to Timothy. He could have said, be strong in prayer, Timothy, or, or be strong in the reading of the Bible, Timothy. But he didn't. He wants this young leader to major in grace. If you're going to miss anything, Timothy, do not miss God's grace. And here's what happens. The further we step into that pool of grace, the more likely we're going to be to give grace. Huh. Could this be an important thing for us to understand here? Could this help a little bit with some of our anger management? Could this be the secret that would free us from feeling so enslaved to unforgiveness? The key to forgiveness is to quit focusing on what they did to you and start focusing on what God did for you. But that's not fair. Somebody's got to pay. You're right. I agree. Somebody must pay. And someone did. But you may still think that The person who wronged you doesn't deserve grace or forgiveness. They're just not worth it. And I'm not saying that they are. Shoot, are you? Am I? Besides, what other choice do you have? Hatred? That sounds like a good option. And look what happens when we refuse to forgive. This comes at the end of Jesus' story about the unforgiving servant. In verse 34. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed, which was like never. Unforgiveness always leaves us in prison. Prisons of anger and of guilt and depression. God doesn't have to put us in jail. We do it to ourselves. In Job, in the Old Testament, it says, One person dies in full vigor, completely secure and at ease, well-nourished in body, bones rich with marrow. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. In her book, The Liar's Club, the author Mary Carr tells a story about a a Texas uncle who stayed married to his wife, but he didn't speak to her for over 40 years after a fight that they had about how much money she spent for sugar. One day he took out a lumber saw and he sawed their house exactly in half. And then he hitched up one half of the house and he drug it back behind this grove of scruffy pine trees and uh, the other side, on the other side of the acreage, and then with both open sides of the house, he boarded, boarded them up uh, with rough lumber. And the husband and the wife lived out the rest of their lives in their own half houses on opposite sides of the property. 
And hatred does that. It, it isolates and it imprisons us. And the truth the Bible promises us is that you will never be called upon to give grace to someone that is more than the grace that God has already extended to you. In the end, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving, I'm trusting that God is better at making justice than I am. By forgiving, I'm letting go of my right to get even and leaving issues of of fairness for God to figure out. I leave it in God's hands. Those those scales of, of balancing justice and mercy, that's His job. Not mine. Your forgiveness is hard. It's not fair. It's really unnatural. But justice is much more human. Irma Bombeck once wrote, Lord, if you can't make me thin, then make my friends look fat. <laughs> you know, and that's justice, right? You know, we get that. But forgiveness, forgiveness is holy stuff. It's, it's made up of the stuff of heaven. You know, it terrifies us. But at the same time, it gives us hope. It's the byproduct of grace. And it's the way to grace. Grace begins and it ends with forgiveness. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of Christmas, of God coming to earth as a child. It's the story of Easter, of Jesus taking the worst that his enemies could dish out and turning it all into the most radical act of grace. And then at the end, before he died, while he hung on the cross, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. And maybe, maybe it can also be the story of this Mother's Day. You know, a lot of us are going to leave here this morning and we're going to go and spend time with our families. And I hope that that will be a happy thing for you. I hope it will be a happy day for you. But the truth is that oftentimes family gatherings carry with them some unresolved stuff, unresolved pain and and words and hurts and, and unforgiveness. So my prayer is that God's grace today on this Mother's Day will empower you to open that door to forgiveness. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we don't forgive. So why should we? Because God forgives us. Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgives you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, for demonstrating it to us through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of your son, Jesus. I pray that each of us would continue walking on this path, wherever we are on it, on this path of understanding what it means to be a follower of your son, Jesus. 
And as we come to comprehend more and more your deep, abiding, lasting, powerful love and your amazing grace, that we would slowly be filled more and more with that grace and it would just flow out of our lives into the lives of other people around us. And may today, this very day, be a picture of that for us. May we be givers of grace. People who aren't worried about justice and fairness and making things even and right, but instead quick to forgive, slow to anger, deeply loving people, a reflection of your son, Jesus. That's my prayer for each of us today. I pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. All God's people said, Amen.